We'll be reading again verses 1 through 7 as we are working our way through this portion of this final chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Euodius and beseech Sintichi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Father, may the very thoughts of our hearts and minds and the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight. May you guard our hearts and minds by the working of your Spirit as we open the Word of God this morning. And may you, by the power of your Spirit, use the truth of your Word to illuminate us to the truth of the revealed Christ and the joy and the peace that has been made available and accessible as you have given it to us in Christ. So may we walk accordingly. May we live therein. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Over the past several weeks, we have been examining the first seven verses of this final chapter within Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And this portion of the text consists of the eighth of the ten major divisions within the epistle. The eighth division addresses the matter of the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ, as we've read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul wrote of this peace in verse 7 when he wrote, "...and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding..." shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. While we recognize that one must possess this peace as provided by God through Jesus Christ, if one is to enjoy and experience this peace of God, we must also, as I said last week, we must recognize and acknowledge and even admit that everyone, including we, do not always live in this peace of God to the same degree at all times. Now, that is not because of a deficiency of the peace of God that is given to us. It is because we do not appropriate the provision. We do not live accordingly as God has required or commanded and as the Spirit would lead and guide us into His truth. And when we fail to live in such a manner, then we are forfeiting this peace. Let me remind you of something. For the believer in Christ, the only thing that can hinder the realization of the peace and the joy of of the Lord in your life is that you forfeit that. Satan cannot steal your joy. I know what Jesus said in the Gospels concerning the thief cometh not but to steal destroy. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, he cannot destroy us and he cannot take from us that which God has given us. He takes away from those without Christ that they may not know this. But we who are in Christ, he cannot take the joy from us. He cannot take the peace from us. But we can forfeit living in the truth of that joy and peace. Now, we still possess it. We are just not appropriating the provision that God has made for us to enjoy this peace and joy that is in Jesus Christ. 
Over the past few weeks, we have considered that which Paul lists as God's prescription for realizing or experiencing this peace, as Paul clarified in verse 9, Philippians 4, 9. These are those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Now understand, Paul is not saying if you disobey, God, the God of peace is not with you. He's saying the God of peace, you will realize and experience this truth of the God of peace being present as you live according to his word. Obviously, the actions, therefore, of the reader did not dictate whether God was with him or not. By the way, we need to understand and, and say thank you, Lord, that that's the case. Because here's the reality of it. It may be surprising to you, but I sin. And it should not be surprising to you. Of course, I say that in jest. <laughs> but it may be surpri- or it's not surprising at all that I sin, and guess what? So do you. So I, I've read, I, I mentioned me first, and I'm telling you that I sin and you sin, and therefore we should be so grateful that the God of peace, His presence is not determined by our actions, but it's His faithfulness and His promises and His purpose by which we have been given this peace of God in Jesus Christ. But yet again, we can forfeit living in the truth of that as we could live in that, as God has provided for us. So we understand that as these individuals lived in submission to the Lord and His will, they would experience and realize this peace. We saw first that God's peace from verse 1 is experienced as we remain steadfast. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Within this verse, Paul is not exhorting this church at Philippi to begin to stand in the Lord, but rather, as we've seen, he's saying continue to stand fast. Continue as you have been, so do ye in the Lord. Number two, God's peace is experienced as we maintain the unity of the Spirit. And of course, this is from previous studies, but he says in verse two, I beseech Yodius and beseech Sintichi that they be of the same mind in the Lord, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's call for unity is indicated by several statements which he makes within these verses. Number one, they be of the same mind in the Lord. Number two, they they are true yoke fellow. Number three, they labored with me in the gospel, Paul said. And number four, other my fellow laborers. So these four statements show the unity for which Paul is both recognizing and calling for, that it remain and that they sustain or maintain such unity as provided by God's Spirit. Now again, I know you've heard me say this multiple times throughout this study and others as well, through even other epistles. We do not, we do not produce this unity. We, we can't. But God has provided this unity through His Spirit. By virtue of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, we have unity. But we are to cultivate this unity. We are to maintain this unity. We are to make certain, in other words, just as as I, as I told you a week or so ago, we are to make certain that we do not get in the way in hindering this unity or hindering this peace personally or this unity corporately as a body of believers. Third, God's peace is experienced 
when we express godly contentment and praise. Verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. This is a universal command for believers. Believers are to not only find their joy in the Lord, but are to continually to, are commanded to continually express this joy, which can only be found in the Lord. Furthermore, we are to rejoice in the Lord while demonstrating His gentleness and His kindness towards all men as we remain aware that time is short and our Lord's return is ever the closer. Notice He said, let your moderation. Your moderation is not saying that we do things without extreme. The word moderation here means gentleness and kindness. So he's saying, let your gentleness, let your kindness be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Here's the the reality. The Lord's return is, is soon. And if Paul said that when he wrote the book of Philippians, this epistle to the church at Philippi, some 2,000 years ago, do we not believe that that truly is the case today, that the Lord is at hand? And might I say, just as with the Apostle Paul and to all of those he had written at the church at Philippi or in that church, they now have already entered and stepped out of this life into eternity. And the Lord is still at hand, but let us be aware and understand the Lord is at hand, meaning he will return. But even if our lives do not reach the point of his return, time is short nonetheless. So let your moderation, your gentleness and kindness, which is from His Spirit, be known to all men. So this morning we will conclude this eighth division of our study of this epistle. And within this verse, verse 6, which we'll be looking at predominantly, Paul explains that God's peace can only be realized when we remain dependent upon the Lord who has given us this peace. And he explains this in verse 6. God's peace is experienced when we rely on the Lord with thankful hearts. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, the term be careful is translated from one Greek verb, and it means to be anxious or care for. So to be anxious is to be nervous or uneasy. I believe it would be consistent with the thought conveyed in this verse by the term be careful to say that when Paul stated be careful for nothing... He is exhorting the reader to not worry. He is saying, do not be anxious or be anxious for nothing. In other words, do not allow anything to cause you anxiety. And, and again, people, let me, let me qualify this so you understand, because I say the word anxiety, and that's different than anxious in a sense. People can experience physically anxiety that is not because they are worried or troubled. It's a physical thing that can happen to them. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, do not allow things to bring you to the point of anxiety, to become anxious because of the situations about you. Now, let us remember something. Where is Paul when he wrote this? He's in prison. And here is a man in prison who desires to not be in prison, obviously, any less than we would desire to be in prison. And yet, he is saying, do not be anxious. Be careful for nothing. Do not allow anything to cause you anxiety. So to be anxious is to be nervous or uneasy. And it means really to not worry. So with that being said, it it is important that we not conflate trouble or turmoil with worry. While one may experience great turmoil or trouble and remain at peace, the truth still remains that peace and worry cannot coexist. 
I didn't say you cannot have trouble and have peace. Do not conflate those two things. Turmoil and trouble does not mean there's an absence of peace. Now, we often think of it that way because we view things from a very secular perspective, physically speaking, in our world. In other words, if we were calling for peace among the nations, we would think, okay, that means there's no trouble, no turmoil, no war. But when you're talking about the peace of God and peace with God, that is not saying there's an absence of turmoil or trouble within the world, it's saying there is a peace and there is an absence of turmoil and trouble between you and God. So we are not, okay, let me, let me back up and rephrase that for you, okay? You, let me give you an example. You know, um, as a kid, I know some kids, when I was growing up, it seemed like they loved to get in trouble. I did not like to get in trouble. And there's times I would even ask my mom, am I in trouble? <laughs> I did not like trouble. I did not want to be in trouble. I did not want that to exist. Now, when I say, I'm, am I in trouble? The question is not, have I done something wrong? Have I, have I committed an offense? The question is, are we okay? <laughs> are, you, are you and me okay? That's the question. Listen. The peace of God and peace with God is saying not only that things are that you and I are okay with Him, that you and I have been made right with Him through Jesus Christ. So though there is trouble and turmoil that exists all about us, that does not mean that there is not peace within us. So again, we must not conflate turmoil and trouble with peace as though these things are with worry, that is, as though um, that if, we're, if we worry about something, then that means, um, or if we have trouble or turmoil, that means the same thing or equates worry or is equivalent to because it's not. We can be at peace and still face trouble and worry or, or problems, but we can do so without worry. So here's what we must understand. While peace and, and worry cannot coexist, there's a reason for that. If we are genuinely realizing the peace that we have with and through the Lord Jesus Christ and with God because of Christ, then this peace eradicates worry. But at the same time, on the flip side of that same coin, worry diminishes peace. So the more we are, are worried or anxious, the less we are truly realizing the peace that is existent. But if we are living in the truth of the peace of God through Jesus Christ, then worry has no place within us. Now, I would venture to say to you, herein lies the problem. Because though we have been given perfect peace with God through Jesus Christ, I would venture to say that all of us still continue to allow anxiety or being anxious to creep into our lives, which does not mean that there's no peace. It means it is diminishing the reality of that peace that we would realize otherwise. However, we also recognize, as I've stated, that peace is not limited to the absence of trouble, but rather can be defined as trusting in God and in His work despite the trouble. In Matthew's gospel record, Jesus spoke of such trust and rest in God's providence and purpose to His disciples in Matthew 6, 24 and 25, and then verses 30 through 33. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now here's the context Jesus is saying. You're either going to live for God or you're going to live for you. And he's saying, if you think 
that you can live for serving God and also serving yourself, then you are sadly mistaken. He goes on to say, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Then verse 30. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Now notice the next statement. O ye of little faith. Therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewith all shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Worry can only reside in the absence of faith. Jesus says, you're worried about what you're going to eat. You're worried about what you're going to drink. You're worried about what you're going to wear. And he says, the next statement he follows is, O ye of little faith. That is not by mistake that Christ makes that statement at this point. He is saying, if worry is consuming your life, it's because there's a lack of faith that is being exuded or demonstrated within your life. What's more, worry can only reside in the believer's heart and life in the absence of faith in God's word, which is to say his promises, and absence of faith in God's provision, which is to ultimately say a lack of faith in his son. Now, we all have need. We're not denying that, and Scripture is not denying that either. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about anything. It's all right. He's saying, do not be anxious and do not worry and th- take no thought. You cannot serve both God and mammon, God and money, God and yourselves. He says, so do not be consumed about what's going to happen for tomorrow or what you're going to have for tomorrow. Now, he's not saying do not be prepared and plan. Of course not. Jesus isn't saying just live life, you know, just, just as you can, just, uh, you know, just flippantly and don't worry about anything, meaning in the sense of don't be prepared for anything or don't try to, uh, to be ready for what may be. But he's saying do not, these things do not consume us. We rather commit ourselves to Christ, commit ourselves to God the Father, knowing that he's already aware of every need that we have and that he is faithful to provide what is needed as he sees fit. As the scriptures clearly declare and state, Jesus said, when we have a heavenly Father as we do, there is nothing that should cause us to worry. Think about this for a moment. The God who spoke all that is into being. He not only knows what is necessary for our lives and spiritually what is necessary as he's provided Christ. But he cares about us and about the need that is there. And nothing limits or hinders him from providing for what is needed that his purpose be fulfilled as he has so determined it to be. And so, if we have a Heavenly Father, and those who know Christ, we do, such as this, what really should ever cause us to worry? Now, we're human, and guess what? We worry. 
We become concerned about things. And you know, they've often said, uh, I heard it said years ago, that or read this somewhere, that worry is like sitting in a rocking chair, rocking away, expecting it to take you somewhere that it never goes. And that most things that we worry about don't even come to pass, by large. Now some do, but many don't. And we allow things to consume us whenever we are to be relying and trusting and resting in God's provision of Christ, knowing that He is sufficient. And let us be reminded of this truth. You shouldn't even be worried about death. Here's why. Because you're going to die. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. So why be consumed with that? Now, should we be aware? Should we be conscious? Of course so. Should we take care of ourselves as we best can? Of course so. But at the same time, None of us are going to escape death. Not one of us. So why sit around consumed and waste a life that's worried about death that is inevitable? So the question then is this. How can we as believers safeguard against allowing worry to creep into our hearts because that potential is always present. Paul provides the answer for us in this same verse. Verse 6, be careful for nothing. No, he could have just stated that and left it there. He could have just said, do not be anxious and do not worry for anything. But he does not just end with that. He then provides the answer to how we safeguard against such worry. But... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, this is a phenomenal statement and answer to the command to not worry. The logical contrastive conjunction, but, suggests an oppositional thought or relationship to the words or statements which precedes it and to which it is connected. This means that Paul is commanding believers to not worry, however, What good is such a command if there is no provision outlined by which to prevent the worry of which we are commanded to not commit? Thankfully, Paul does not leave us without answer and safeguarding against this worry. Again, we read verse 6. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The answer to worry, the answer to doubt, the answer to fear, and the answer to complaining is this one thing. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now the scripture further teaches us, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Remember, Peter, the one who states this, was a fisherman. And when they fished in the time of Christ in the first century, they were not using Zebco rods and reels. They were using nets. And you know how they, how they would catch fish? They would cast the net. This is not saying cast as in casting a hook and line and sinker. This is saying cast as a net would be cast, casting all your care, throwing it away from you onto him. Why? He cares for us. So why worry when he cares for us? And by the way, the things that you worry about the most, you can't do anything to alter or change it. It's absolutely beyond your control, the things you worry about the most. But why worry about those things when we have a Heavenly Father who is unlimited in resource and unhindered by all that would oppose and also 
has an absolute unconditional love and care for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we are commanded to guard against worry by committing all things to the Lord in prayer. Furthermore, the word supplication is very interesting here. You say prayer and supplication, aren't they the same thing? Well, they have similar meaning, but the word supplication is commonly used in relation to praying or interceding for others. So when you say prayer and supplication, this isn't simply saying, okay, well, don't worry, but just pray and pray. No. He's saying, don't worry, do not allow anything to bring you to anxiety. He says, but the answer is that we pray and that we are praying in supplication with thanksgiving making our request known unto God. We find this truth of supplication in Ephesians 6, 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 1 Timothy 2, 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving a thank giving of thanks be made for all men. As we consider Paul's answer to the threat of worry, we see the answer to be very clear and straightforward. So let me summarize what Paul is saying in verse 6. Number one, pray over all things. As we just yesterday met the men and prayed together, we were looking at the truth of, of Luke chapter 11 where Jesus has been praying. He ceased to pray. And then the disciples say unto him, Lord, teach us to pray even as John did his disciples. And then when you see the beginning of what would be the model prayer there, then you go to Matthew 6 and you see it more clearly. Whether it's the same exact prayer or not in just a part of the synoptic gospels or whether it, it is two different times in which Jesus was giving the model or example, regardless, Matthew 6 gives a fuller example of this model prayer to us. And he begins by saying this, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy and set apart as the name of God. We must recognize again that we cannot bring God down to our level. Jesus, God had purposed and Jesus willingly humbled himself as we see in Philippians clearly. He humbled himself and became or came in the likeness of sinful flesh even lower than the angels. He's already come to meet us where we are. But we don't call God the Father down to where we are. We have access to God the Father where he is through his Son. And so this idea that we casually approach God and just prayer is just something where God is my buddy. No, he's not. Yes, he's your friend in the sense of through Christ, that is our friend and our brother. But yet, he is our Father who is set apart unto himself, hallowed, holy, set apart is his name. So as we approach him, we don't do so with swelling words and vain repetition, but we are to approach him with reverence, but yet confidently. Not confident in ourselves, as Hebrews, the writer says, um, that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of our high priest, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. The word boldly is not arrogant, it is confident. Let us come with confidence before the very throne of God, the Creator, our Heavenly Father, knowing that He hears and He cares. 
And I ask you, when we have this true, eternal, spiritual perspective, how can we worry? The only time we will worry is when we begin to lose sight and focus of this truth. And then we allow worry to creep in. So what is the answer to that again? Well, pray over all things. Number two, notice this. Pray for others. You know what we do? We become very self-centered. We all do this. We are so prone. And we are to make our requests known to God. We are to pour our hearts out before God. But hear me. If you pray and pray only for you and yours, there is a real problem there. We are to intercede. We are to pray for one another. And by the way, as we begin to pour our hearts out before God and we begin to pray for others before our Heavenly Father, you know what that does? It turns our attention away from us and we begin again to experience the realization of that joy and peace because we're not so focused on us, which we should not be anyway. Number three. And this is very important. Have a thankful spirit. You know, there's not any one of us in here that don't have problems. There's not one of us in here that don't have situations in life to which we can give ourselves to worry. We can give ourselves to anxiety. None of us are immune to that. Some of us have greater problems than others on a scale as we would weigh them right now. It's true. But nonetheless, we all have problems, we all have trouble, we all have strife, we all have difficulty, we all face opposition. It's just a fact of life. And any of these things, apart from the prescribed answer to us in Scripture, any of these things not only can, but then will cause us to come to a place of anxiety, anxiousness, or or worry. And often... When we begin to worry, we are so self-focused even more so that we will begin to be as the children of Israel. What happened when they began to worry as they went out Exodus in the wilderness and they began to get scared? Remember, listen, this is not, this is not by chance that these two are together. If you recall with me, they make it to the, first of all, they complain, it, it's hot, it's cold, whatever, right? I mean, you know, God gives them a, a pillar, uh, a fire by night, which warmed them, a, pill, a, a cloud by day, which cooled them and all. But then they get to the, they get to the, the sea, and when they got to the sea, do you remember what happened? They became fearful. Why did they become fearful? Because they turned around and looked behind them and up the road in the wilderness, in the desert, here comes Pharaoh and his armies. And as soon as they see Pharaoh and his armies and they start coming up, they began to complain. As soon as they got tired of God's provision in the wilderness, they began to complain. As soon as they... Focus off the fact that God, their deliverer, had redeemed them, had brought them out of Egypt. They began to complain. Are you, are you understanding? When we are complaining and feel sorry for ourselves and begin to gripe, it's because we're not filled with thankfulness to God as we should be. Now, I will admit to you, when I'm going through struggles physically, spiritually, whatever it may be, trouble, trial, heartache, burden, grief, whatever it may be, that yes, just as you, there is absolutely a tendency, but again, to to just wonder, maybe not questioning God, 
but just not understanding and wondering why these things are as they are or begin to become despondent because we are looking at where we are at the moment. But might I remind you, no matter where you are at the moment, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that cannot begin to compare from where God has brought you from. So should we not have hearts that are filled with thanksgiving and praise to God because He is good (laughs) and He does that which is good? And it doesn't mean that we don't face the trouble and difficulty, but it means that we can say, if this is my lot in life for this particular day at time in time, then let it be known, Lord, I still thank you that somehow you are receiving the glory and will receive the glory through this, regardless of what it costs me. Let me remind you, we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. And though we are not our own, what are we then commanded to do? To glorify God with both Body and spirit, which are the Lord's. You know, there's never been a moment in my life where God came to me and said, whether I be praying to him or just appeared to me, right, and said, hey, Truman, I was thinking about doing this, and I wanted to know if you're okay with that. (laughs) Might I say, if you want to be honest, if, we, if we're honest with each other, and thank God for this truth. Though we don't always understand it, thank God for this truth. God is constantly, divinely interrupting our lives. But there's a purpose in that. I can tell you <laughs> that not everything in my life has worked out the way that I thought it would or the way that I would have chosen for it to or the way that I would have desired for it to. But nonetheless, God will be glorified and He is good and I should be thankful to Him. And you should be thankful to Him and have a heart filled with thanksgiving. And then four, trust and rely upon the Lord. Last week I mentioned that although there is much to be said concerning this one verse, I do believe the entirety of this verse with all its truth can be summarized with this one statement. A thankful heart that is totally relying on Christ is a peaceful heart. Or a heart that's at peace. As we live according to these exhortations provided by Paul, we will experience and realize this peace of God. Philippians 4, 9 again, Paul wrote, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul's not telling them to work up some work. He's saying, look, Trust and rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Live in submission to the will of God. Serve the Lord and pray, not only making your requests known to Him, but pray for others. If you do these things, which is just simply submitting to the Lord and Him working His truth and will through us, He says, then the God of peace shall be with you. You're going to realize that this God who has given you this peace, the God of this peace, you're going to realize His presence. It's not he's not with you otherwise. He's always with us. Again, thank God. If you can't be thankful for anything, this you should agree with me in thankfulness to him right now that God's presence with us is not dictated by our actions or performance before him. So truly, Paul has made it abundantly clear that the peace of God is provided for us through Jesus Christ is superior to all other claims of peace. For it is only when one is at peace with God that he can experience genuine peace at all. Being at peace with God is the result of God having reconciled or removed that hostility that existed between us and himself. 
This, of course, was accomplished through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, 20 and 20 through 22, we read, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. When we understand what was necessary to provide us this peace with God and to experience this peace of God through Jesus Christ, you will possess a desire to remain steadfast in unity, always rejoicing with thankful hearts unto the Lord. But let us recognize something here. Peace did not cost, peace with God does not cost us anything. We do not buy or purchase or merit such peace with Him, but it cost Him everything to provide us this peace with Himself. And if we recognize that, how can we not be thankful and steadfast and in unity with those who also have this peace of God through Jesus Christ? Paul declares then in verse 7, which we've already dealt with a couple of weeks, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 6 is intricately and vitally connected with verse 7. 6 and 7 are connected in such a manner. Notice again, let's read them together. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So again, this peace of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's already yours. You already possess it. The question is not, do I have peace if I'm a believer? Do I have peace with God or do I have the peace of God? The question is, how much am I hindering the realization of this peace in my life? Let's stand together in prayer. Father, you are good. There is none beside you. You are holy.